quite a few uh, years ago now. I can't actually remember the year, it might have been 2015, 2016. I happened to be in Wodonga one weekend with family and as they were all sleeping in on Sunday morning, decided to walk to church and turned up here unknown. It was wonderful and sat somewhere about where Bob is there and uh, joined the congregation in worship. And, and one of the songs that was played was very similar to that which we've just been singing, a well-known uh, hymn that captures uh, some deep theological truths. And the whole congregation just rose in wonderful harmony as we were singing. And the interim pastor and I were chatting afterwards and he said, isn't it wonderful? You know, we can just lift our voices like that. And it was very similar as I was just standing here this morning singing with you. It's, it's a great blessing to be able to sing and those songs that one by Horatio Spatford captures such truth it's an excellent thing to be able to do together we're going to read a passage of scripture this morning that will probably cause you to want to sing as well but perhaps not um, like we have just now uh, it is um, from Luke Luke chapter 6 and it's found in verse 46 through to verse 49. Luke chapter 6, uh, 46 to 49. Let's see if we can pop this up on the screen. Here we go. Jesus said these words. We'll talk a little bit about the context as we go because what's come immediately before this passage is very important and what comes after it is also significant. But the parable that we're looking at this morning will be well known. Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrents struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Now, is there anybody here who can link a song to that parable? This will probably, thank you, this will probably date you a little bit. I see a few people doing this, you know. <laughs> the wise man built his house upon the... Don't sing it. Well, <laughs> actually you can if you want to. Uh, I don't remember the rest of the actions. What the foolish man built his house upon the sand. Yes, the rains came down and the floods came up and the house on the sand went... Yeah, you know it. There's a few passages of scripture that do that, aren't there? Um, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. Yes, you know that one. And if, you, if you've got children, uh, even in this kind of age, um, Colin Buchanan's got a lot to answer for. John, <laughs> John 14, 6, do not let your hearts be troubled. Yes, it, you just can't help it, can you? There are other passages of scripture that also, for me at least, um, cause me to want to sing. Uh, the story that we find, we're not going to deal with this one today, Luke chapter 19, 1, the story of Zacchaeus. How does that one go? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. We cannot sing that song anymore because it probably is not PC. <laughs> Uh, 
It's one of the beauties of song, isn't it? They just embed themselves into our psyche, into our consciousness. And so chances are, for some of you at least, coming to this passage today, you can't help, and you'll probably get it in your head now uh, for the rest of the day, uh, you can't help but sing that song, you know, the, uh, the wise man built his house upon the rock. And that's the power of music and lyrics. It's a wonderful blessing that we have. It can make a story memorable, but, and here's the problem, it can also run the risk of making something very profound seem very simplistic. And one of the risks of the passage that we're looking at today uh, from Luke chapter 6 is that it's a very simple passage. It's only four verses. Uh, it's, it's a story that's so well known. It's one of those part and parcel, grist for the mill kind of bread and butter stories that we might have in kids' church. And so we are at risk of oversimplifying it and so oversimplifying our application as well. This is a story that you actually find in two places in the scripture. It's found in the Gospel of Luke and it's also found in Matthew. And it's interesting if you have a chance later on to compare the two. Matthew's story is slightly longer and Matthew's interest is actually in the builders, the wise man and the foolish man. His focus tends to be more on the builders, whereas Luke, Luke's interest is a little bit different. And that's why we're having a look at Luke, because Luke is interested in the foundation. Less interested in the building, more interested in the foundation. Uh, what's really significant, actually, though, is that both of the authors locate the parable at the end of a significant block of teaching. And so if you go to Matthew, you'll find this parable comes after the Sermon on the Mount that very uh, important passage of teaching that Jesus gave in Luke. Uh, Luke has located this passage immediately after Jesus' sermon on the plain. So Jesus has, has been teaching and so says to the people, I will show you, uh, whoops, I've jumped a few slides here, sorry. I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. In effect, Jesus was saying to the crowd, I have just taught you these things. Now you need to put them into practice because practically speaking, if what I have taught you is not into practice, it's useless to you, isn't it? It would be a, a little like buying, um, and I've not thought this through, so this could go anywhere. Um, you just, you buy something, a useful tool for your garage and you put it on the shelf and you admire it and you never use it. Now, it's a lovely thing, this teaching, but if you don't actually apply it, then uh, it's not much use. And the same could be said of anything that we learn, whether in the context of our church or in any other context for that matter. Many years ago, when I was in year 12, uh, we studied this book as, as one of our year 12 texts. Is anyone here familiar with George Orwell's book, Animal Farm? I'm uh, seeing lots of people uh, nodding affirmation. It's, a, it's an interesting story. For those who are unfamiliar with it, without giving too much away, um, it's a story about farm animals who rebel against their uh, human overlords. They chase the farmer off the farm and they develop utopian dreams of equality between the animals. They're going to have everything shared equally between them. But over time that utopian dream degenerates into uh, a most hideous dictatorship characteristic of what r was reflected uh, under the humans before the animals rebelled. Now, 
Orwell, of course, wrote this as a very direct critique of Stalin and Stalinism. And so anyone who's politically astute uh, will, will appreciate that it was actually a satirical attack on, on that kind of Stalinist philosophy. I didn't know this. Uh, an interesting little fact. Um, through the 1950s, the CIA, the American Central Intelligence Agency, got hold of this book. They ordered millions of copies of the book. They attached copies of the book to hot air balloons and flew them into Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia. Millions of them. In the hopes that the Hungarians and the Polish and the Czechoslovakians would get them and read this book and would uh, recognise what was going on in their context. It was, so, it was so concerning that the governments in those nations actually scrambled jet fighters to shoot down the balloons carrying the book. Interesting little fact. I'm sorry Marie's having trouble with this concept, but we'll talk about it later on. <laughs> that's, um, that's the power of story though, isn't it? Those governments in those countries recognised the significance of, of, of story, and story is powerful. In fact, I could illustrate this quite easily this morning because whenever Matt and I are preaching, you know, we might be, uh, how can I put this nicely, we might be uh, disseminating some significantly deep theological meaning and, and when we look around we see people whose, whose heads are kind of going... <laughs> Like this on a coat. No, no criticism of anyone in particular. Uh, but as soon as we start telling a story, what happens? And you know this is true. Because stories actually grab us, don't they? Stories actually grip us. And this is absolutely true with this parable. Because when Jesus was teaching, he'd been teaching all of these things, these ethical things, significant things, and then told a story. You can bet your bottom dollar that the moment Jesus started telling a story, he had the people's attention in the palm of his hand. And this story in particular was really significant because people in the ancient Near East knew a thing or two about building houses. They lived and they worked very organically in the sense that they would have understood what it took to build a house. They knew what it meant to build a house. And we know a fair bit about building houses too, don't we? I've not actually built one myself. Um, I, I built an extension on a house. That's a pretty impressive piece of work too at the time. <laughs> I wish I had photos. Um, but I haven't been able to find any. At the time, we were living on a farm uh, in the wonderful, uh, wonderful utopian life in Boundary Bend, down the Murray beyond Swan Hill. Uh, our home was an old caravan, a triaxle caravan up on blocks. The wheels were gone. It had had an awning annex kind of thing built onto it which was terrific. There was a full-size evaporative air conditioner attached to the side of it. So when you put that air conditioner on, let me tell you, <laughs> it filled that space with cool, fresh air. But it wasn't quite big enough in the sense that uh, we had two children at that stage. Uh, our lounge room was our bedroom. Uh, so we decided to build a room. I decided to build a room on the front. So I poured a slab. I got some of those, um, the panels that you would use for 
cool rooms, you know, the white panels, uh, cut them, joined them, put a roof on. We bought a great big window, it was enormous, probably three metres long, just um, multi-panel windows so that we could look out in this wonderful vista because we looked out over an enormous um, view over the country and we created this wonderful room. It was fantastic. So I know a little, a little bit about building, but the truth is, if I was to build a house today, I would probably go and contract one of the local building companies. I would watch as they bring in an excavator to clear the house slab. I would watch as they bring in backhoes to dig foundations. I would watch from a distance as they pour the slab with concrete trucks that come from somewhere around town. I would be interested to see the frames come in. Now this is different, isn't it? Because years ago I did actually help a, a carpenter frame up a house. We did it by hand. Now they're all pre-made. You just bring them in, you stand them up, they're done in a day. I'd see the crane bring on the roof trusses, the on the roof, watch the carpenters, the plumbers, the tilers, the electricians come and do all of their things, the brickwork done. And then at the end, and this would be the really good part, when it was all done, I would stand here and say, everyone, guess what? I have built a house. <laughs> I have probably not actually done a whole lot apart from putting myself into debt for the next 142 years. <laughs> but I built the house. When I tell that story, I'm just reminded of occasions, and I think I might have mentioned this too in the past. There were times when our children were young, you'd hear a conversation that went along these kind of lines, you know, maybe after church or after school. Do you want to come to my house? Do you want to come around to my house? This is from a seven-year-old or something. Do you want to come to my house? And I'm sitting there thinking, hang on, you little skiver. You have not paid one cent. <laughs> towards this house. How can you say, do you want to come to my house? It's not your house, it's my house. <laughs> and there's actually, <laughs> there's a wonderful, a really wonderful theological application that comes out of that. You might wonder where it is, but trust me on this. Whatever belongs to the father belongs to the child. In terms of, of God's kingdom, we are heirs of everything that God has. He's blessed us with every blessing under heaven. You know, whatever belongs to the Father belongs to us who belong to Christ. That's a wonderful blessing, isn't it? And so I can say, uh, you want to come to my house, metaphorically, you know, participate in God's blessings because they belong to me. Uh, we, that's a red herring. We don't need to talk about that. In terms of ancient Near East, though, let's talk about houses in the ancient Near East. Um, in terms of the building process, about the only similarity between what happened then and what happens now is, is the rough time frame. Because now, what I've done in terms of research uh, would suggest a house, about six months to build a house in our context. In the ancient Near East, it was about the same. And it was about the same because houses could only be built during the dry season, during the summertime. And there's a reason for that because the houses were built using stone, either cut stone or, uh, or just um, rank stone. And you'll see um, pictures here. This is actually Mount Gerizim, which is, um, well, there's a whole heap of background here, but the ruins on Mount Gerizim. You can see the stone there that is joined together. Those stones were laid and they were joined with mud mortar. And so you could ill afford to have rain while you were building. So building had to take place during the hot, dry time of the year which would be just a little bit annoying, wouldn't it? Because it is hot. It's very hot. 
And what happens during the hot, dry time of the year is, of course, the ground sets like concrete. In fact, uh, the scripture actually talks about the ground being, excuse me, as hard as bronze. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 26, verse 19, God said to his rebellious people, if you do not stop your rebellion, I will close the sky. The sky will become like iron. You can think of, you know, those grey skies that just never produce rain. The sky will become like iron and the ground will become like bronze. It'll be so hard, you won't even be able to dig it. And that's true in Israel in summertime. The clay becomes so hard, it's as difficult to dig as bronze. And so the temptation, of course, is if you're going to build a house, here looks like a great spot to build a house. It's the middle of summer. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? There's got to be a joist under here somewhere. You can hear, let's build on this foundation. This will work. That's the temptation. And that's the temptation that Jesus was alluding to in uh, his parable. People had probably done just that. The ground that appeared to be as solid as anything, uh, let's build here. But of course, you know from experience, uh, sometimes from hard experience, and this is not my car, by the way. Um, this is somebody else's experience. A road that can be as dry and as hard as iron in the summertime after rain there are contexts where uh, the substrate just liquefies and you can be driving along one month and it's no problems and then come back a couple of months later and you end up in this sort of bother. You know how that works. We've seen that work. Uh, the rains come down and the ground structure changes, notwithstanding a flood as is described in Luke chapter 6, a flood which rushes against the walls. And if the substrate um, structure changes with the weight of all of those stones, you know what's going to happen, don't you? They're going to start moving. They're going to start sinking. It's going to actually change. It was a very unfortunate experience. The little church that we used to be part of in Robinvale had. They'd built on, on a, a good foundation. Um, it was, this is going to sound a bit confusing. Uh, the substrate was calcium carbonate, so a kind of a limestone base with sand over the top. Um, and everything was fine for years, except uh, there was a leak developed in a pipe underground. And that leaked and it leaked and it leaked and it leaked and it dissolved the substrate, the calcium carbonate actually dissolved away. And so a great cavern under the church opened up and the whole church started to go like this at the back. And uh, those major issues. Foundation was the problem. This is what Jesus is addressing in this parable. And if you were to ask any person in the Middle East today, who was in the business of constructing a stone house, if you were to ask them the question, what, what depth do you need to go to to establish your foundation? Their answer will always be the same. Down to the rock. Whether it's 10 centimetres or a metre. And you'll notice if you read carefully this parable, um, Verse 48, Jesus said, the one who hears my words and puts them into practice, he is like a man building a house who dug down deep. Digging down deep is not easy work. Digging down deep in summertime is not easy work. But that's the only way to establish a foundation that will last. 
Let's uh, move away from the practical elements to the theological uh, grist behind this parable where its greatest punch actually is to be found. This is actually not a new parable, by the way. Um, many times I think Jesus actually, in the context of teaching, teaches a parable and he just does it off the top of his head, so to speak. And that in, in itself is quite remarkable. But I don't think he did it this time. Because there's another parable that has, uh, has some history here that's actually well worth looking at. And I suspect that um, Jesus not only had this in mind, but Luke's picked this up for this reason. It's a parable that was um, told almost 750 years before, and it can be found in the book of Isaiah chapter 28. Now, Isaiah 28, there's a little bit of context that's worth understanding here. Isaiah was actually speaking at a time when Israel was under threat. There was, um, uh, and we've talked about these people before, the threat of Assyria, a nation to the northeast of Israel who were marching through the region. They were like a juggernaut coming uh, and they were rolling every little nation in their way. Anyone who stood up to the Assyrians were punished terribly and, and the illustrations even in the Assyrian art just illustrates the manner in which they treated their conquest enemies. They tortured people. They were the most hideous, torturous, barbaric people there were. And they were powerful. They were the superpower of the day. And so in Israel, the nation, the people, the leaders were looking at this juggernaut coming in their direction and thinking, what are we going to do? How do we actually stand up to these Assyrians? What do you do in that context? Well, you look for some friends. And so Israel had actually turned to Egypt and made an alliance with Egypt. Now, keep in mind that Egypt had a really interesting worship system themselves. Egypt, uh, the, the gods of Egypt largely, um, uh, how can we put this, focused on, on death. They were very concerned with the afterlife and that kind of stuff. And so there was this interesting alliance between Israel and Egypt, which Isaiah speaks to. Now, I'm going to put some text up here, which may be just a little bit hard to read. Not this part. This is what Isaiah says. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Uh, there's a lot of words up here, but I've done it so that you can see the pattern. Because Isaiah, in his brilliance in revealing the word of God, which, of course, has come from the word, has actually got... A, a parallel pattern here and I'll show you how this works uh, and inevitably what's at the middle is what you need to take notice of. So here's uh, what Isaiah said, you boast we have entered into a covenant with death, that's that covenant with Egypt, with the realm of the dead we have made an agreement when an overwhelming scourge sweeps by it cannot touch us, in other words when Assyria comes we'll be okay. If you go down to verse 14, uh, sorry, verse 18 there, let's highlight this so it's a bit more obvious. Um, the response that God makes to this is to say, your covenant with death will be annulled, your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When, some, when the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you'll be beaten down by it. And then uh, it goes on. For we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. This idea of an alliance with Egypt, um, it's just a lie. It's a falsehood. And again, um, there's 17b, the second half of verse 17. Hail will sweep away your refuge. The lie and water will overflow your hiding place. You see where this parallel between Luke and Isaiah is coming in here? There's going to be a flood coming. 
So this is what the Sovereign Lord says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. Verse 17, I'll make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line and the key, the one who relies on it will never be shaken. Now we read that and say, aha, there's some messianic stuff going on here, isn't there? You know, this foreshadowing of Jesus. But keep in mind, of course, that in the time of Isaiah, uh, the people had no concept, really, of Jesus. They had no idea of some kind of Messiah, perhaps. And certainly, even in Jesus' time, the understanding of what a foundation looked like was different to, to what Jesus is speaking about in this parable. But can you see how this parable, this, uh, this story from Isaiah actually has um, a link to the Gospel of Luke and the parable of the two buildings, uh, two builders. There's this idea Israel's putting their trust in the alliance with Egypt, but there's a flood coming, and when that comes, you're going to get washed away because your foundation's in the wrong place. It's the same idea as what Jesus is talking about in the parable. And Isaiah mocked the people who made an alliance with Egypt, thinking that this foundation would keep them safe because it was based on a lie. There would be a great storm, the Assyrian army would come, and the foundation that they had built will be destroyed. Their foundation was faulty. But, and this is the key of the message to Isaiah, there would be another foundation, a precious cornerstone. This, this ought to be ringing bells for us, shouldn't it? You think about 1 Peter where a certain person was talked about as the cornerstone, you know, the foundation. And of course we read the parable of the two builders through post-New Testament eyes and of course we think of Jesus as the foundation. But to people of Jesus' time, this wasn't immediately obvious. In fact, um, through the years, the people of Israel had developed other ideas about what the foundation was. The Qumran community, for instance, a, a, a sect or a small group of Jew, Jewish people had decided that this foundation would actually be kind of like a priesthood. And so they'd set up a priesthood and they had laws and they lived according to these laws and they said, that's the foundation. And other Jews had said, well, actually, that's, that's probably not what it is. We think it's actually a real rock. There's this little bump on the top of Mount Zion, which they believe was the place where the Holy of Holies stood. That's the foundation stone. That's where the centre of worship is to be. It's really interesting to, uh, to head up to uh, the Temple Mount today because, of course, um, there's this great mosque that sits on that place, possibly on that place. There is actually another spot on that Temple Mount that may also have been the place where the Holy of Holies stood. But there were Jews who said this was the place, the foundation stone, literally a stone. And so uh, there were these ideas about what the foundation was. But Jesus came along and posited a whole new idea about what the foundation was. In Luke, he said, the one who hears my words and puts them into practice is building on a solid foundation. In other words, it's not this rock, it's not this law, it's not the prophets, it's not the priests, it's me. The foundation to build on. And if we have a look at the context of the parable, as I've already said, Jesus had just finished preaching 
uh, uh, to the people, teaching the people, highlighting how the inbreaking of the kingdom, this kingdom that he was bringing to reality, demanded a reorientation of their values, um, a reshaping of how the people thought about judgment, a redefinition of love, um, and uh, these are all good things. They will bring you into alignment with the kingdom, but ultimately the foundation is not even these things. It's me, is what Jesus said. In fact, it would be to sell the transformational mission, uh, ministry, message of Jesus short. It would actually be uh, to sell Jesus' message short to say, if you want to build on a better foundation, just be a better person. You know, just choose some new ethics. Just ramp up your goodness. The message actually is the foundation is the person. Uh, and that lives, it's, it works itself out in practice. In fact, if you have a look at Luke 6, 47, Jesus said three things. Come to me, hear my words, put them into action. And as we ought to expect uh, with Jesus, the ultimate test of the integrity of the foundation that we build in life is not just better law-keeping, it's actually a relationship with him. To be a Christian is not simply to uh, agree with the ethics, it's to be in relationship with Jesus. You'd probably be familiar with um, the, uh, the story of, of the time when Jesus and his disciples went to Caesarea Philippi, the north part of the country. Um, you can read about this in the Gospels. He took um, his disciples up there into a territory um, that was very pagan. It was the centre of the worship of the god Pan and it was there that Jesus asked his disciples a really interesting question. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Remember, he's asking this in the context of all of this other stuff, religious stuff going on around. Uh, the picture here is of the cave that the people that lived in the area believed that the gods came out of in the springtime and retreated to late autumn. It's a beautiful part of the country. Who do you say that I am? And the answer that the disciples first gave, sorry, who did the people say that I am? Uh, and the answer was, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. You know, we're relying on those people as our ancestors, as the antecedents of our faith. People who build a foundation on the law, on law keeping, a foundation on prophets who would call them back to right religion. But then Jesus asked a really penetrating question. Who do you say that I am? It's a fantastic read. I just have this image of the disciples kind of being stopped in their tracks. Who do you say that I am? You can't escape that question, can you? It's easy to answer the question, what do others say? It's, a, it's one of those classics. I'm hesitant to go there, but let's do it anyway. Every now and again... Um, if there's some concerns of someone might have about stuff that's going on in the church, um, someone, a kind person, will come and say, oh, look, there's some people in our congregation who are a bit concerned about yada, yada, yada. It's always easy to kind of push it out there. And, and beware, because my question is always, which people? And what are you thinking, you know? 
You can't avoid Jesus' question that he asks here in this passage. Who do you say that I am? Where is your foundation? That's the question, really. And it was Simon who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the long-awaited one of Israel. And Jesus went on to say, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. That means the little stone. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, we're not going to debate today whether Jesus was saying on this rock, Peter, you are the rock, or whether it was on his declaration. The grammar actually could allow either. In terms of the broader scope of scripture, I personally think it's the declaration that Peter made, but let's not argue about that right now. Either way, it points to something that Jesus wanted to communicate through the parable of the builders. I am the foundation. I am the one you need to build on. You can have your foundation in all sorts of other things, and some of them are very good things. It might be education, it might be your capacity at sport, it might be your financial security, it might be your capacity to make good decisions, it might be your, your employment, it could be all sorts of stuff, good things that God gives to us. But if those things are your foundation, watch out, because ultimately there will be a test and they will not stand. And that test, that flood, you'll notice, and we'll talk more about this tonight, the flood hit the good house and the house that was not on a foundation that was good. Just because you build on a good foundation doesn't mean you won't face the tests and trials of life. The flood came to both. But Jesus wanted to make it really clear. Build on me and my words and you will not be shaken. In our service this evening, we're going to deal with this passage, but I'm going to come at it from a totally different um, direction. But one of, the, one of the uncomfortable things that I want to speak about tonight is that um, we assume, we make an enormous assumption actually, we assume that most people gathered in the context of a congregation know the Lord. But it's, um, it's an assumption. Statistics would actually suggest that it's quite possible uh, that up to 50% of the people who are sitting in church on a given Sunday have actually not built their life on that foundation of Jesus. There's all sorts of other good things and perhaps uh, like the crowd that Jesus was preaching to there in the Sermon on the Plain have heard the words of Jesus, like the words of Jesus, are drawn to the words of Jesus, but have not done anything actually about owning their faith for themselves. There are those whose foundations are on all manner of things other than the person, of work, uh, person and words of Jesus. And so I'm under no illusion that, um, that you know, everyone's on board with what I'm talking about this morning. I'm actually convinced there are people here who yet need to make that decision to say, you know what, I'm going to take that step. I'm going to make that decision. I'm going to take that choice to put my foundation on Jesus, the rock. And I want to invite you to consider that if that's you today. If that's where you are in life, if, even if you've found other things have come in and you're putting your foot, your foundation more on that than it is on Jesus to reorient yourself to God, to Jesus as the foundation. We're going to pray, take a few moments to pray and I invite you to reflect on that invitation. Where is your foundation? What is most important in your life? What does it mean to have Jesus as that foundation? Let's uh, close our eyes and take a few moments 
to consider those questions and then pray together. Father, we are deeply challenged by those three, those three elements of this message. Come to me, Jesus says, hear my words and put them into action. Father, we are deeply challenged by the reality that it's actually quite hard to build on rock. It's hard to dig down. It's hard work to be a follower of you. It's hard work to be obedient to your words. It's hard work to keep you central in our hearts and our lives because there are so many other things clamouring for our attention, so many other things drawing us, so many other things attracting us. And so my prayer is that each person here, myself included, will be open to what your spirit is saying to us right now willing to respond to your prompting, willing to confess when we feel convicted, willing to acknowledge our shortcomings, willing to admit there have been times where perhaps we've kind of held you, Jesus, just in a comfortable place. We've liked the community that we're part of. We enjoy the relationships that we have. We enjoy the safe kind of friendships that there are for us in the context of the church. But that's as far as it's gone. And so for those, Lord, amongst us who are not sure what it means to know you, to relate to you, to honour you, to serve you, Lord, just reveal that to them now in their hearts, we pray. And Lord, as we read on in the Gospel of Luke, the very next story is of a centurion, a guy who was not even Jewish, who sent to Jesus to ask for help for his servant who had passed away but who demonstrated such faith that even you Jesus were amazed by it a guy who was absolutely convinced absolutely convinced that you Jesus were true that what you said was true that you could do what you promised and that you would act for him on his behalf to your glory Lord, we thank you for that illustration of faith too. And we pray that you might grant to us faith like that centurion, that demonstration of faith that has Jesus at its heart, at its centre as the foundation. So God, continue to do your work amongst us, we pray. Speak to us, grow us and shape us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.